This podcast is brought to you by Langley & Benack, a full-service South and Central Texas law firm that delivers the highest quality legal advice coupled with exceptional client service. From our main office in San Antonio, we provide the resources of a national firm while maintaining close ties to the communities in which we practice. To learn more, please visit us at langleybenack.com. That's langleybenack.com or call us at 210-736-6600. Today's episode is part four of a five-part series on oil, gas, and energy law. The series is hosted by Clinton Butler. The information, opinions, and recommendations presented in the Langley and Benack podcast are for information purposes only and should not be considered legal or professional advice for any particular situation. The presentation of this informational content does not create an attorney-client relationship. If you would like to meet with one of our attorneys, please contact us through our website at www.langleybenack.com or call us at 210-736-6600. Today's episode will focus on bankruptcy in the oil field and what to do when your operator declares bankruptcy. Today's guest is possibly the most important guest that we'll have on the podcast, if for no other reason than I do not practice bankruptcy. When we were plotting out these episodes, my producer told me that we had to do an episode on bankruptcy. To which my response was, well, who the hell are you going to get to do that because it ain't going to be me. The fact that I'm sitting here right now doing a podcast on bankruptcy should give you a good indication about the size of the stick that I swing around here. But they did at least give me an expert to interview on this topic, my partner Alan DeBard. Alan is a partner in our bankruptcy section and has handled countless bankruptcies for large businesses, individuals and closely held family corporations. In addition to Alan, I'll also be rejoined by my partner Stephen All from episode three, who because of his work in Dimmit and its surrounding counties, has been dealing extensively with the ongoing Chesapeake bankruptcy, which really did rock the oil and gas market when it went down and has the potential to be a harbinger of things to come. So with that, please join me in welcoming to the podcast, Alan DeBard, and re-welcoming Stephen All. Stephen, Alan, welcome. Thanks, Glenn, for having me. It's good to be here. Good to have you. Stephen, welcome back. Thank you. Good to be back. Awesome. So, Alan, uh, we're, we're children of the 80s. Uh, we grew up with 80s movies. I'm going to paraphrase Ghostbusters right now and say, Alan, I want you to pretend for a minute that I don't understand anything about the oiling or about bankruptcy law. Explain to us what bankruptcy law is and what types of bankruptcies there are just kind of a brief you know umbrella overview of just in bankruptcy in general sure um, a lot of people have a misconception about bankruptcy they think that it, it's a bad it's a bad word almost that you have no money you can't go forward and the end of the world is coming and it's really not that way i think of bankruptcy as a tool it's a tool that companies and um, corporations, even small, uh, closely held companies, have to maintain their business operations. And not only maintain their business operations, but keep their employees um, employed. And those employees obviously rely on their job to feed their families. And, and so it's really a tool to allow a company to reorganize its debts in a manner that makes them able to 
service those debts over longer periods of time usually. Um, <clears throat> there is a, a component of bankruptcy that is not a reorganization, and that's called, a, it's, it's a liquidation. And I call that the, the Band-Aid bankruptcy. You're ripping the Band-Aid off and the company is essentially over with. And that, that's a, what's called a Chapter 7 bankruptcy. So we're going to start with the smaller chapters. 7 means a liquidation. Essentially, your company is, is no longer going to be in business. Um, you know, before a company decides to file bankruptcy, they usually talk with their CFOs and all their, um, um, all their chief operators, executives, to make the decision of, you know, does this company have a going concern value? Are we making enough money? Do we have enough assets? Do we have enough opportunities to really go forward? Um, and if the company makes the determination that it doesn't and that it's better off being done, a Chapter 7 bankruptcy is one way to end the company, essentially. And so that, that's, you know, I guess we'll start with the lower numbers of the worst, right? If you're in a Chapter 7 and you're a company, you know, the, the ship is going to the bottom of the ocean. It's just time to get off. Right? That's right. Yeah. Tell your, tell your employees to go find another job, basically. That's right. And so Chapter 7 is really just how to best manage the liquidation and, and basically the, how, to, how to have a peaceful death for this company is that right essentially yeah and it's even it's even that much easier because all you do as the company you file the bankruptcy and you're pretty much done because in chapter seven there's a bankruptcy trustee who comes in and administers liquidates whatever assets there are so the company files chapter seven the way i think of it is you hand the keys over to the trustee you say goodbye and you're done get and your box of stuff and you you walk <laughs> out the door and you you know you move on to your next project. You move on to your next project. And so, you know, that's a chapter seven. That is, mm -hmm. you know, basically we're shutting the doors of the business. We just got to find the best way to satisfy these existing debts. And then it's over, right? That's right. All right. So what's our next type? There, um, in the oil and gas context, you're not really going to have um, any of the intermediate chapters. There's a chapter nine, there's chapter 12, but chapter 11 is really the meat of what most oil and gas business bankruptcies um, and, and so for. without getting into the oil and gas aspect yet, just give us kind of a brief overview of what Chapter 11 would look like. You know, what, what is a Chapter 11 bankruptcy? Is, is that still a, you know, a death nail to the company? Is the company going to fail to exist after a Chapter 7 like it would, oh, excuse me, after a Chapter 11 like it would a Chapter 7? Sure. So, I mean, you'll read about Chapter 11 mostly in the Wall Street Journal. When they're talking about bankruptcies in business publications, you're going to hear Chapter 11, Chapter 11, Chapter 11. And you do have a fighting chance when you're in a Chapter 11. The whole idea is to rehabilitate the balance sheet, um, work out your, your debt problems, and that can be done in, you know, there's two reorganizations, and this kind of sound kind of contradictory, but you can have an orderly liquidation as a, quote, reorganization. Or you can also have a complete debt overhaul as part of your Chapter 11 reorganization. Um, so it's not necessarily a death, a nail in the, in the coffin, but companies do orderly liquidate and wind down under Chapter 11. And the way that the Chapter 11 wind down is different from a Chapter 7. If you recall, I said, you know, when you file Chapter 7, you hand your keys over to the trustee. Well, if you want to orderly liquidate in a Chapter 11, you keep the keys. You keep your assets, and the management is the one um, who does an orderly liquidation of whatever it is that there is for value. Now, why would a company want to 
be in charge of its own liquidation as opposed to just handing the keys over to somebody else and you deal with it. Sure. Um, chapter 7 trustees are very good. They're very sharp. They're good at what they do. Their only goal is to liquidate things usually as quickly as possible. So it's very rare that you're going to get a fair market value for an asset in a Chapter 7 case. Furthermore, um, when in Chapter 11, current management, they know the business. Whether you're selling widgets or oil, those guys who run the company, the employees, they know the business. They know how those assets work. They know the market that's out there that could be potential buyers for these assets. So they already have the connections and the people who would be target buyers for some of these assets. So um, you get to, in a Chapter 11, you not only have a chance of a better, uh, better market, but you also have a little bit more time. You're not trying to sell this stuff tomorrow. You can afford to wait six months and have a process to sell things, if you will, to get a competitive bid and market those assets. So there's a way that a company can peacefully end itself under Chapter 11. Is there a, is there a way in which under Chapter 11 a company can try to continue at, you know, is there life at the end of bankruptcy for a company, in, potentially in Chapter 11? Sure, and before I get to that, I wanted, I wanted to tell you about a case we had sure. here um, where we did an orderly liquidation. Um, it was for a, a construction company who did highway jobs for the state. And they did it throughout South Texas and they had motor graders and heavy machinery, stuff that you had to put on a big 18-wheeler just to move from project to project. And it was scattered throughout South Texas, along the border, all over the place. And so part of the orderly liquidation was finding this stuff. We had to go find it, um, put, it on a, uh, put it on a flatbed, take it to Ritchie Brothers in Houston. They, they fixed it up and they sold it. But in that case, the company wasn't, didn't have any more construction contracts. They were essentially done. So the only thing to do was to orderly liquidate. And it made sense to do it in a Chapter 11 because the manager management knew, generally, <laughs> where all those pieces of equipment were. And the ones that were still there and, and weren't beat up too badly, we were able to recover and sell and pay creditors. So yeah, I mean, if you've given it to a trustee under seven, you know, the trustee might just kind of be looking around going, well, I don't know, you know, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And the, and the trustee would be relying on us, to, the, the debtor, to say, well, this one's over in Star County. Last I saw it, it was on Highway 60 by the Texaco, you know, and that's about all you can tell them. And a lot of times what happens is, is if the trustee can't sell it or doesn't want to sell it, he just abandons the assets. So no, nobody gets anything for it, really. So going back to the question, though, is there a way that a company could survive through Chapter 11? Sure. And, and that's you know what, what, what bankruptcy lawyers and attorneys want to try to do. You want to try to um, file a case for a company that has a hope of, of rehabilitating itself and then have a going concern value to continue doing whatever it, it does. So the bankruptcy is kind of used to try to satisfy as much of the debts as possible, relieve those debts, and then put the company back on you know some sort of footing where it can continue. Is that right? Exactly. The one of the benefits of a bankruptcy filing is you get a breathing spell. Everything stops. So the minute you file bankruptcy, people basically can't mess with you anymore. Mm -hmm. Can't sue you. They can't try to collect on debts that, that the company owes. You get sort of a moment of clarity for a certain amount of time to sort of halt everything, focus on operations, or examine your debt structure, identify essentially what the problems are to the extent that you haven't identified them before you file bankruptcy, but really to focus on what it is you do as a company and not have the distractions of 
you know, people calling and asking for, you know, payments on, you know, whatever it is you do, whatever you owe them for. People can't continue to sue you. You know, lawsuits, unfortunately, take a lot of attention away from a business that could be used focusing on, you know, doing the operations that they, they do. So we've got, um, we've got Chapter 7, we've got Chapter 11. What's the next chapter? Uh, chapter 13 um, is essentially uh, for individuals. So um, individuals file Chapter 13 and it's more of like a, a debt adjustment. And, and what you do in a Chapter 13, a lot of times they'll be filed to save off a homestead. If you're behind on your mortgage and back before COVID when banks could foreclose on things, they would post people's houses for foreclosure and a, a individual consumer uh, would file Chapter 13 really to stop the foreclosure. What what types of bankruptcies are you seeing in the oil field? You know, 7, 11, 13, you know, what, what are the typical types and why do companies choose those types of companies, those types of bankruptcies? Sure. Um, lately we've seen a lot of um, Chapter 11 cases from big E&P companies who have just been over leveraged and they just want to rework their debt or they do a, a debt to equity conversion so the bondholders become the owners. Um, we see a lot of that. Um, we see, uh, unfortunately, there's sort of a trickle-down effect. You know, it starts with the EMP, and it may go down to the midstream. You know, once once a company gets squeezed out, everybody relies on each other, from the servicers to the pipeline people to the drillers. So it's it's sort of a domino effect. It's it's a it's like an ecosystem where you know if you take out you know if you've got this you know food chain and you take one you know element out of that food chain, the whole food chain can collapse on itself, right? Exactly. And that's why it's so important to have that tool to reorganize. Because if the company goes under, you know, a lot of service companies aren't diversified, meaning that they only service one company's wells or pipelines or whatever. So if that one goes, then, you know, you have suddenly have a, a service company that's probably not going to survive and have to file a Chapter 7 because they have no other work to do. Stephen, in your practice from, you know, we mostly represent at Langley mineral and royalty owners, right? right. Uh, in your practice, are you and your clients starting to see um, any notices of bankruptcy or filings relating to bankruptcy that are being delivered to your royalty owner clients? Sure, yeah. A lot of our clients have. I think it started probably with our clients uh, with Exco, which was actually several years ago an operator down in the Dimmick County area that purchased some of Chesapeake's assets mm -hmm. and then now we're seeing you know and have seen the notices with uh, from Chesapeake about their bankruptcy as well mm -hmm. and that Chesapeake bankruptcy you know I don't want to oversay it but it, it really was a bombshell in the industry when you know everybody kind of saw it coming uh, but then when it hit it really was you know one of these major uh, shell operators you know the company that pioneered shell development. You know, I mean, it right. might not be in Eagleford or the development out in West Texas if it hadn't been for the technology developed by, by the guys at uh, Chesapeake. And so, you know, when that company, you know, finally made its filing and, you know, kind of took the suspense away that had been hanging over for about a year or so, uh, it, it really did rock the market, in my opinion. And, and it really, you know, it was one of those deals where, it's like one of your if one of your buddies in law school you know fails the bar it's kind of like man if it could happen to him you know <laughs> it could happen to any of us you know? and so um, Alan if if Stephen or I you know if one of our royalty owners comes to us 
and says, hey, you know, I got this notice that my oil and gas company is going to go bankrupt. You know, what's our step here? What, what advice do we need to be giving those people? Sure. And, you know, to keep with the Chesapeake thing, we did represent a number of royalty owners in the Chesapeake uh, company. And, and basically what we told them, and we advise, you know, all royalty owners, it's important to file what's called a proof of claim. Um, in bankruptcy, the only way that the company who files bankruptcy um, <clears throat> really knows how much each of its uh, creditors are owed is by the creditors filing what's called a proof of claim. It's a very simple form. It's like three or four pages. You basically say, I am Alan DeBard. I own a royalty in this well, that well, this well, and this is how much I'm owed. You file it with the court. The company that's in bankruptcy, which we call the debtor, reviews it, and if they agree with it, then they usually, that's that, that satisfies you know, the amount of your claim, and you will hopefully get paid based on that. Um, it's a little more complicated than that, obviously, because you know, a lot of times it's hard to know what you're owed, you know, because um, it's based on production and it varies from month to month. And um, does that proof of claim have to be like to the penny exact? Can it be an approximate? Can it say, you know, I, I've got a good faith belief that I'm owed somewhere around X amount of dollars? Yeah, I'm, I'm hesitant to, to, if you don't know, I'm always hesitant to put a number in because if you're too low, you can't go back, you can always amend it, but you, don't, you never want to be too low, because if you're too low, then you, you know, you might have... Foreclosed on the amount above <laughs> what you said. Right. Yeah. And so it's, it is acceptable to put undetermined for the amount, and okay. you would just put, to, you would put together some, something that evidences what royalty interest you own. So we usually ask for like a, you know, the last check that you got, because usually it'll show, you know, the eight percent, whatever your... Your royalty statement will have, you know, right. some sort of decimal interest percentage in a well or something. Yeah, like and hopefully it tells you what well it is and it's enough to for everybody to, to say, okay, well, it looks like they've got an interest in this one and production for these four months was X. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, it, it, like we were saying, it's, it's hard to know. And usually every royalty owner is owed some amount of money because they're paid in arrears. So... You know, the company files in June, you probably don't have, you know, your April or May payment yet. So you're owed, so it's, it's you want to make sure you file a proof of claim. Yeah, so like, you know, royalty owners, you know, Stephen, you, you know better than anyone, the royalty owners typically getting, you know, in June, they're getting paid on like April production, right? Right, and Alan and I worked on this um, in, relative to the Chesapeake lawsuit as well. We also had some clients that had claims for unauthorized deductions, right? Right. Um, and so unauthorized deductions or, you know, underpaid royalties. And so if you have that claim, you might legitimately not know what the claim is. That's kind of what the litigation That's is right. about, right? That's right. Um, it, it's a real chasing your tail situation there where, you know, I, what kind of claim do I state when I'm, I've already got a claim pending against this company saying you're not paying me correctly. Right. And, you know, I'm, I've sent out discovery and I've, I've, I've done depositions in order to try to find out how much I'm owed, but, you know, we still not have put the dart on the bullseye yet. You know, I mean, you experience situations like that, Alan? Sure. I mean, you, what you want to do is, is you want to preserve your, your right to a certain amount. Whether you know it now or not, um, you, you want to assert that amount. And um, luckily for royalty owners, um, there are, in, in almost, 
shouldn't say every, but in most large bankruptcy cases, the debtor who files will file a motion asking the court for permission to just go ahead and pay all the royalties owners the amounts that they are owed. And, and that's what <coughs> Chesapeake is doing currently, right? I believe Chesapeake filed such a motion. Uh, that's right. Yeah, and so your royalty owners with Chesapeake are still getting, quote unquote, paid, right. you know, but you know, there's, how do you how do you investigate those payments right now, Stephen? Given that they're in bankruptcy and that you know all ancillary items outside of bankruptcy are stayed. Yeah. So um, you know, yeah, our our clients that have Chesapeake Wells are still receiving their normal monthly royalty payments. Uh, you know, when a company's in bankruptcy, especially like we'll talk about Chesapeake just because. Uh, they're kind of the elephant in the room, but you know they still have employees there. You still call and ask questions just like you normally were, unless it involves, you know, litigation or prosecuting the litigation in the bankruptcy court. They're still doing business as usual. So, I talked to him this morning on a client that said, "Why did my royalty payments decrease by two thirds?" So, <laughs> called them up and said, "Hey guys, what's going on here?" So. Uh, in, in that respect, it's investigating claims or asking for information or is business as usual for the most part unless it involves actual the actual litigation in the bankruptcy court. And, and Alan, I'll, I'll demur to you on this, but it's my understanding that one of the things that's keeping Chesapeake in Chapter 11 and not going into Chapter 7 is its representation that it is still paying its royalty owners, that it's still able to meet those cost obligations and therefore you know it can continue on as a business. Uh, at least during the pendency of bankruptcy, if not thereafter. Uh, and that is what is really keeping it right now, or one of the items that's really keeping it right now from shifting into a Chapter 7. You know, if it wasn't able to satisfy its debts to its royalty owner obligations, then there's probably no reason for it to exist. Sure. And I mean, um, and just one point to clarify, you know, debtors traditionally have to make all of their obligations, debt obligations from the day they file bankruptcy going forward. It's the debts that existed prior to bankruptcy that they get the breathing spell to pay. Um, I, mean, I mean, as you and Stephen know, most leases have a clause that say if you don't timely pay your royalty, the, the lease will terminate. And so that's a really big fear for most companies in bankruptcy because without the lease, there's, there's nothing their, to do. There's their assets, right? right. So if Chesapeake <laughs> lost all of its leases because it didn't pay, then it'd lose the majority of its assets, right. and then there's certainly no reason to keep it out of settlement. Right. right, and so you file a proof of claim, but generally Chesapeake and every other big EMP will seek court approval from the bankruptcy court to pay the pre-bankruptcy royalties, even though there's a sort of general rule in bankruptcy that you don't pay your debts that were outstanding as of the date you filed. Gotcha. But that there's that fear of losing your real asset is is so you know, strong that courts, sort of bankruptcy courts, break the the rule not to pay pre-petition creditors to ensure that those leases aren't lost or terminated. Now, does does the state that a company is incorporated in, you know, the state it's basically born in, that it, it resides in, um, you know, the state of its residence, you know, like I'm a resident of Texas, you're a resident of Texas, you know, certain companies are considered to be residents or incorporated in Texas. Um, does that state of incorporation, does that play any role in what rights and obligations royalty owners have in order to protect their royalties when a company goes bankrupt? You know, I, I th to a certain extent, yes. Um, I, I think really the law of the state 
um, under the lease is, is really what's going to control. You have companies that are incorporated in Delaware. We see a lot of companies incorporated in Delaware because it's thought to have more fair corporate rules. So companies that operate in Texas who are really Texas citizens will file in Delaware. In order to avail themselves of Delaware law. Correct. Uh, because there's a perception that the bankruptcy courts there are um, better handled to, to, to deal with complicated cases with lots of money and debt. But you, what you have is now you have Delaware courts applying Texas oil and gas law, and which is, you know, most Delaware lawyers aren't versed <laughs> in, in oil and gas law, which even for a Texas lawyer is still a very complicated subject. Any more so than I'm well versed in Delaware bankruptcy law. Exactly. Yeah. And so you, it's kind of, you know, as a Texas lawyer, obviously you like to see cases filed here. So, um, but that's just the way the world works. And so you have Delaware lawyers practicing Texas oil and gas law. They often call on Texas lawyers to, to help them. Though. One of the things that, you know, just passing by the bankruptcy section on my walk through it to a different section in this office, <laughs> I, I'll hear the terms, you know, secured and unsecured creditors. Mm -hmm. um, and there's an important distinction there, is that right? Absolutely. And can you give our audience, you know, what, what's the difference between a secured creditor and an unsecured creditor? Okay, yeah. Um, <clears throat> secured means you have collateral um, backing up your debt. And the easiest way I think of when I think of secured is if you own a home with a mortgage, the bank is a secured creditor because it has the ability to foreclose on your home if you don't pay. Mm -hmm. When I think of unsecured debt, the thing I think of first is credit cards. Everybody has a credit card. Hopefully you don't use it too much, but every month you have a bill for a certain amount of money. And that's a debt that you owe the credit card company, but the credit card doesn't have any collateral to where if you don't pay, the credit card company can take that collateral and sell it to satisfy its debt. Credit card company can't just foreclose on my home. Right. Okay. So do royalty owners in the state of Texas, you know, when we said they'd file a claim, um, are their claims to those future and or past royalties, are those secured or unsecured? <laughs> There's cases and opinions and um, thoughts kind of all over the board on this, but the general rule is that an unpaid royalty is a unsecured debt. I typically file them as unsecured because I, the way I read the rules and the law is that they are unsecured. Um, you have lawyers who are very competent, very capable, who file proofs of claims for royalty owners and they assert that, they assert that these royalty owners are secured claims under the Texas Business Commerce Code 9.343, which we don't really want to get into if, you don't, uh, if we can avoid it. But they make creative arguments that say um, that somehow these royalty owners are secured by... What are they claiming is the collateral in that sort of sense? The, the proceeds from the production. Okay. So the production and then the first proceeds from those production. Okay, so um, the cash on hand. Right. Gotcha. Okay. And so I, I mean, I have filed proofs of claim for royalty owners saying they're secured, but I, they really are. Is there a difference? I mean, do you, is there a difference in priority? Is there, you know, something that, you know, a secured creditor gets that an unsecured creditor doesn't in a bankruptcy proceeding? A secured creditor has collateral. And let's just say for purposes of this conversation, well, let's use an oil and gas example. Let's say that um, your collateral is, a, is the oil in the ground. And so if I'm a bank and I have a lien, a reserve-based loan based on the reserves of the company, 
that those reserves are being depleted every day. Hopefully the company is pumping oil and gas, hydrocarbons out, and it's selling them. And so your asset base, your collateral, is being depleted. And so as a secured creditor, you're entitled to what's called adequate protection for the value of your collateral that's going down. And so as a secured creditor in bankruptcy, you can get monthly payments, you know, whatever that amount is. It can be a lot, it can be a little bit. You can get replacement liens. So if, you're, if they're consuming your cash or your collateral, you get a lien on new receivables that come in. Whereas an unsecured creditor, you just kind of got to sit and wait and see how they plan to pay you back. And usually it's not a great payback. So, yeah. So I was going to jump in there real yeah, quick. Uh, please. In our oil and gas lease, we have a provision in our oil and gas lease, and I worked with Alan on this some, that says that um, the mineral owner is going to maintain a lien on future production for unpaid royalties. So in the context of the Chesapeake lawsuit, we're local counsel, but it's a bunch of our clients. We've got about 130 clients or so that are in the lawsuit. So there's been two types of claims that have been asserted. One is a secured claim uh, for unpaid or underpaid royalties, and the other is an unsecured claim for other claims that we made in that litigation, like failure to properly develop, failure to drill offset wells, those types of things. Um, so we filed two sets of claims, and in the context of that bankruptcy, I think the bankruptcy plan says that if you're a secured client, you can get money, cash, right? And the unsecured claims all get a portion of stock in NUCO of Chesapeake's new entity. So I think, and I don't know if Alan knows the plan better, but I think the unsecured <coughs> creditors of which for Chesapeake were about $4 billion in unsecured claims okay. are all sharing in 12.5% or so of NUCO. So they'll actually take all the unsecured creditors, pile all those unsecured claims, or the allowed unsecured claims, mm -hmm. right, Alan? Right, they have, to be, yeah. they have to be allowed by the court. They pile them all in, and then all of those people collectively own their pro rata share of, I think it's 12.5%, it's approximately that, of the new Chesapeake entity. So when you say an allowed claim, does that mean that you know you got to present your claim to the court and they got to sign off on it or something? How, what, what's an allowed? Sure, and just, a little bit more context. So yeah. when when a when a bankrupt when a debtor when the company files bankruptcy, uh, every debtor is required to file what's called the schedules and statement of financial affairs. And in your schedules, you sign them under oath. You are required to list every asset that you own and every debt that you owe. And so if you are list if a creditor is listed in the schedules, that is a prima facie meaning good evidence that of an of a claim that should be allowed in that amount. Oftentimes the books are incorrect, and so a creditor would file a proof of claim asserting the correct amount. And so <clears throat> once the proof of claim is filed, that sort of supersedes the amount of the claim in the schedules. And if the debtor disagrees with that, then there will be litigation or an objection filed to determine the correct amount. And so an allowed claim means that the litigation or the claims resolution process has run, whether through a hearing before the bankruptcy court where the judge says, here's the evidence, and says, I agree that the claim is X dollars or Y dollars. But a lot of times you'll just reach an agreement between the creditor and the debtor without having to go to court on the amount of the claim. And then it will be allowed. Once it's allowed, it, can be, um, it will receive the treatment that that class of claims is going to receive under the plan. Like in, in the Chesapeake, the unsecured creditors are getting a percentage of the um, stock in NUCO based on the amount of their claims. So if you have a billion dollars of claims, you're going to get more shares of stock than the guy with 
the $2,000 lab claim. So basically the way they're satisfying some of these claims is they're just giving them stock in this new company that's being created out of this bankruptcy. Right. That's and that's pretty. You know, that is one common resolution of um, satisfying unsecured claims. Uh, there's only so much cash, and you know, some plans provide for a cash pool. You know, that all the unsecured creditors share. Some of them create a new class of stock. Usually, doesn't give them voting rights or anything, but it's it's a share in the new company. You're you're invested in the future of the company, so to speak. So, you know, in addition to royalty and mineral owners, uh, Langley Medak also represents a lot of the service companies in the oil and gas industry. So what do these service companies need to do um, either, you know, let's, let's do it both ways. What do they need to do to protect any debts that existed, you know, prior to the declaration of bankruptcy? And then what do these service companies do, like, you know, the ones that are still working with Chesapeake? You know, that are still, you know, providing, you know, drilling equipment and, you know, pipelines and stuff like that to Chesapeake. How do you do business with a company who's currently going through bankruptcy? Sure. I mean, it's, it's a real scary thought. Um, you know, here you are, say Chesapeake owes me $500,000 and hadn't paid me for what I'd, all the business I did before. Why do I want to go do business for them now? What's the, what's the promise that they're going to be able to pay me? after I do X, Y, and Z. Um, and so there's nothing in the bankruptcy code or other law that I'm aware of that would make a company continue to do business with a, another company in, in bankruptcy. Mm -hmm. And so there's a, a sort of a risk reward. But one thing that the bankruptcy code and the bankruptcy laws provide for is a sort of to give vendors comfort. They, if the vendors won't continue to work with the debtor, no chance of reorganization. They'll be in a Chapter 7 quickly. But what the bankruptcy code allows is what's called an administrative expense, uh, which is basically dollar-for-dollar dollar payment um, for every job that you do for the debtor after the bankruptcy filing, you get, you, you have to be paid, <laughs> basically. Or the, the debtor could face dismissal, conversion, um, and more administrative expense claims against it. So, Gotcha. Those are the sorts of protections that vendors could have when they continue to do business, or they do business with a company that's in bankruptcy currently, right? Exactly. You want to, you want those people to feel protected. Otherwise, the whole system fails. Yeah. I mean, why continue to do business with somebody who's in Chapter Eleven if I've got no protection, right? Exactly. And if those people in Chapter Eleven can't do business with vendors, then there's no reason for them to be in Chapter Eleven because they can't do business. They right. might as well just shut it down and not even gone through the, pro the process of trying. Might know. as well just done Chapter 7 in the beginning. And been done, yeah. Gotcha. What about companies that we've represented or that we continue to represent that did business with Chesapeake and then Chesapeake declares bankruptcy and Chesapeake hadn't paid? You know, what are they going to do? You know, luckily, you know, for, for um, service providers, there's the Texas um, Mineral Lien Act, Chapter 56 of the Texas Property Code that allows a, um, a service provider who doesn't get paid to file a mineral lien um, against the leasehold where they did the work. Mm -hmm. um, it's a convoluted, complicated statute. You have to do everything the right way, but it does give you very important protections. Boy, that is a series of traps, that statute <laughs> right there, or set of statutes. And so, you know, I, I think that one of the counsels that we've certainly given uh, companies is that if you foresee a debtor problem, get with the attorney quickly uh, because the longer you wait, the more these deadlines are just going to start hitting you in the face and boy, they start coming quick 
and if you miss one of them, you're out of the game. And, you know, maybe you're getting a little bit of worthless stock at the end of this thing instead of having collateral on your claim, right? Exactly. And so um, just real quick, I, we talked about when you file bankruptcy, you get a breathing spell. People can't collect against you. They can't sue you. But one thing that's not protected by or that's not prevented from happening is a, the ability to perfect your mineral lien claim. Say I provided vacuum services or whatever it is out at well at Spindletop. And then the company files bankruptcy. I haven't perfected my lien yet because I just did the work a month ago. You can still go through the process of perfecting that mineral lien even though the company is in bankruptcy. That's really important because you're not, most creditors aren't allowed to take other steps. Like if you were a bank that had made a loan to the company before it filed bankruptcy and you hadn't perfected that loan by filing a UCC with the Texas Secretary of State, the act of filing that UCC would be a violation of the automatic stay. So that would be real bad, but luckily um, the bankruptcy code permits mineral lien claimants to, uh, to follow through with perfecting that, that interest. And, and the thing about it that's so important is that it creates a, you talked about unsecured and secured earlier, a mineral lien, a properly perfected and filed mineral lien gives you a security interest in those, the leasehold and the assets that are there. And that's where you want to be if you're a creditor in a bankruptcy proceeding. You want to have that collateral, you know, something that you can grab hold of and touch yeah. that, you know, that is worth value rather than just some unsecured claims just kind of floating out there in the ether, right? Exactly. Because, um, it's very, very rare that any company doesn't have bank debt. Almost every company uses, uses leverage, borrowing money from whether it's Bank of America or a conglomerate of banks, but you know, substantial term loans. And essentially what happens is those banks will take a lien on every asset of the company. But if there's this little mineral lien hanging out there that encumbers one of the bank's assets, collateral, the bank usually wants those to be paid off. And so the bank will, let, will loan the debtor, the company of bankruptcy, more money to just pay those mineral liens off so that it doesn't have to fool with them. So this really, you know, this really simple step of just perfecting a mineral lien claim can be the difference between getting paid 100 cents on the dollar right when the bankruptcy is filed or getting pennies on the dollar two years or later after the bankruptcy's filed. So and it's just... And Stephen, I think what you were saying earlier is in your oil and gas leases, you know, you have a specific provision in there that Alan helped you write that creates a mineral lien claim in favor of the royalty owner. So, you know, while statutes can create mineral lien rights for companies that provide goods, services, and materials to these oil and gas companies, you know, like we talked about in episode three, that lease creating the relationship between the parties, uh, you contract with the oil and gas companies to uh, provide your clients the ability to perfect a mineral lien when they otherwise wouldn't be entitled to one. Is that right? Right. Okay. And so, you know, that's for the purpose of giving them, you know, that ability, that same ability to have that secured collateral. Uh, and hopefully get paid off as quickly as possible, uh, just like a service provider or something like that. That's right. Okay. Well, gentlemen, uh, I really appreciate the time today. This has been Clinton Butler, and I want to thank uh, Alan DeBart and Stephen All for joining us, along with everybody who's listened today. In our next episode, we will uh, be discussing the executive duty. It'll be our final episode, and I'll be 
joined by my father, Richard Butler, who's a uh, former litigator here at Langley Manac. And uh, we will be discussing the evolution of the executive right over the last 10 to 15 years and how that has really changed the duty that an executive owes to those that he owes the executive rights over. So thank you very much for joining us on the Langley and Manac Oil and Gas Podcast, and we'll see you next time. Thank you for joining us today for the Langley and Banach podcast. Please subscribe to get the latest updates. If you would like to meet with one of our attorneys, please contact us through our website, www.langleybanach.com or call us at 210-736-6600.